This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 103, August 8, 1985. First of all, I want to return to the subject of the Irish Church very briefly. By the way, I uh, was shuffling through pages and I said the Irish Church conducted extensive missions throughout Africa and I should have said Europe. But now I'd like to read to you briefly a statement from James Westfall Thompson, a medievalist. And he quotes someone who spent his life working on Irish manuscripts. And he says, and I quote, I have examined with a magnifying glass the pages of the Gospels of Lindisfarne and the Book of Kells for hours together without ever detecting a false line or an irregular interlacement. And when it is considered that many of these details consist of spiral lines and are so minute as to be impossible to have been executed with a pair of compasses, it really seems a problem not only with what eyes, but also with what instruments they could have been executed. One instance of the minuteness of these details will suffice to give an idea of this peculiarity. I have counted in a small space measuring scarcely three-quarters of an inch by less than half an inch in width in the Book of Armagh, not fewer than 158 interlacements of a slender ribbon pattern formed of white lines edged by black ones upon a black ground. No wonder that an artist in Dublin, lately applied to by Mr. Chambers to copy one of the pages of the Book of Kells, excused himself from the labor on the ground that it was a tradition that the lines had been traced by angels. A little later he goes on to say, and I quote again, What the Irish monasteries represented in this whole cultural development is well expressed by an American enthusiast. They were schools, all the way from kindergarten to university, hospitals, hotels, publishing houses, libraries, law courts, art academies, and conservatories of music. They were houses of refuge, places of pilgrimage, marts for barter and exchange, centers of culture, social foci, newspaper offices, and distilleries. A score of other public and practical things were the garrison, granary, orphan asylum, frontier fort, post office, savings bank, and general store for surrounding agricultural districts. We carelessly imagine the early monasteries as charnel houses of Canton ritual, whereas they were the best-oiled machines for the advancement of science and the living accelerators of human thinking, unquote. Well, that gives you an idea of the importance of the Irish Church. I mentioned Arminianism and Pelagianism last time also. Arminianism has deeply Pelagian roots, although Arminius denied it. However, subsequent Arminians, like John Wesley, not only affirmed it, but said they could not understand how anyone could regard 
Pelagius as a heretic. In order to understand something about the meaning of Pelagianism, perhaps the thing to do is to look at some of the charges that were filed against Celestius and uh, Pelagius, which they did not deny. In fact, what they did was to uh, try to evade a direct answer. First, that Adam was created mortal and would have died even if he had not sinned. Second, that the sin of Adam injured himself alone and not the human race. Third, that infants at the moment of birth are in the same condition as Adam was before the fall. Fourth, that infants, even though they are not baptized, have eternal life. Fifth, that the race of man as a whole does not die by the death or fall of Adam, nor does the race of man as a whole rise again by the resurrection of Christ. Sixth, that the law has the same effect as the gospel in introducing men into the kingdom of heaven. Seventh, that even before the coming of Christ there were men without sin. Unquote. I'm citing all this from an older work published in 1956 by the uh, in Cambridge, England, by W. Heffer and Sons. It's Pelagius by John Ferguson, professor of classics. Well, what was uh, Celestius and uh, what was Pelagius saying in these seven points? First, they did not see sin as the cause of death. They saw death as a natural fact, whereas in terms of Scripture, death is an unnatural thing in the universe. It is a product of sin. It is a deformity that God created man to live, and man, by sinning, brought in death. Then that the sin of Adam did not have any effect on his descendants, of course, is contrary to all orthodox theology. This led him to the conclusion that uh, men could be sinless without Christ. And as he says in his seventh point, that even before the coming of Christ there were men without sin. This implies that man does not need Christ to be saved, that man can be perfect and merit salvation on his own. Because there was no hereditary aspect in the humanity of Adam, Infants at their birth are exactly as Adam was at creation, sinless, without any predisposition to evil. Thus, the death of uh, man is not the product of Adam's fall, nor is the salvation of man of necessity tied to the resurrection of Christ. The law, he says, has the same effect as the gospel in introducing men into the kingdom of heaven. By the law, Pelagius and Celestius, who had very little interest in the Old Testament, meant essentially morality. They said that men could be saved by morality. 
In fact, in brief, their position could be that our salvation is in our own hands, that we have free will to do as we please, and we can be perfect or we can be sinful. This is our decision, and it is not the uh, work of Adam or of Christ. Moreover, one of the cardinal points in Pelagianism was this, because man can be sinless, any institution man creates can be sinless. And if the institution be the church, which is in part supernatural, then it is inescapably sinless. The idea of the sinlessness of the church was introduced thus into theology by the Pelagians. There's much more that can be said about Pelagianism. It was, as Ferguson notes, very similar to what the 18th century called natural religion. And as a result, it had uh, a readiness to uh, merge into a non-Christian form of religion. There was another important aspect of Pelagianism which also deeply infected the church. Namely, that no one could be saved who was rich. And by rich, he meant uh, what would include most Americans, I suspect. And he thus required, and Pelagius was a monk, a kind of monastic life on the part of all Christians for them to be saved. The rich man could not enter heaven, he said, even if he used his riches to fulfill God's commandments. Thus, the whole point of Pelagius was essentially that uh, man was his own savior, that uh, morality could save any man that men outside of Christ had been sinless and could be again. This is a heresy which has infected Christendom, I believe, perhaps more than any other single heresy. Its influence on the church has been profound. Both Catholics and Protestants have been very, very heavily influenced by Pelagius. To another book now, Stephen Williams, Diocletian and the Roman Recovery, published this year, 1985, by Methuen, M-E-T-H-U-E-N, in New York City. Diocletian, of course, was the emperor who has often been accredited with saving Rome. There's no question that he pulled Rome together after a series of emperors had been created by the uh, army and each in turn 
had been assassinated or had failed or in some way or other the thing had fallen apart. Diocletian came to power out of the army, but he tried to reestablish the monarchy or the emperorship on the old Roman gods to find a religious basis rather than a military basis for power. Accordingly, to accomplish this, he had to stress more than ever Roman religion. Roman religion was more or less dead at that time, but he attempted to revive it. This meant that the rulers had to be born of gods as well as being the creator of gods, as the phrase at the time had it. Their source of legitimacy was the gods, but they became one with the gods when they became emperors. At any rate, the important fact is, with Diocletian, anti-Christianity flared up with particular intensity. If they were going to go back to the Roman gods rather than to sheer naked power, as with the military leaders, then they had to have a religious foundation more clearly spelled out. And this meant persecuting other religions, ones that refused to become a part of the establishment, namely Christianity. In order to salvage the Roman situation, Diocletian instituted wage and price controls. It is interesting that in most universities the historians think highly of Diocletian, and the economists, if they have any element of conservatism, think very little of Diocletian because he instituted wage and price controls. He tried to rivet on the Roman Empire a system of fraudulent money. And a great deal that Diocletian did is forgiven by historians because of his anti-Christianity. It was Constantine who introduced Christianity as a legal religion. It was Constantine who cleaned up the bad money situation and created a hard currency. It was Constantine who abolished price controls and much more. But none of these things mount to anything in the eyes of these historians. Because Constantine was a Christian, he was bad. And because Diocletian persecuted Christianity, well, that made him good. Under um, Diocletian, the state became the largest single land owner. It also became more and more oppressive in its taxation. One man who spoke out against this and wrote against um, Diocletian was Lactantius. And Lactantius is very poorly thought of by most historians for this reason. 
he increased the power of the state enormously. As Lactantius said, and I quote, the number of those being paid by the state was so much larger than the number of taxpayers that because of the enormous size of the assessments, the resources of the tenant farmers were exhausted, fields were abandoned, and cultivated land turned into wilderness. And to instill fear into everyone, the provinces were also chopped up into small pieces. Many governors and even more minor officials fastened on each region and almost every single municipality, as well as a multitude of tax officials, administrators, and vice-prefects. Very few civil cases were heard by them, but only condemnations confiscations, endless exactions of innumerable kinds of goods and intolerable wrongs in the process, unquote. Moving in the same direction as Diocletian, and the number of tax collectors are growing, and we are moving to the same kind of power state where the federal government becomes the biggest landowner. So it was in Rome. The interesting thing is that the more the Christians did in the Roman Empire in the way of providing good government, church courts that gave justice for anyone who came there, taking care of widows and orphans, the sick and the needy, instituting Christian welfare, and much more, they became accordingly more offensive to Rome. Richard Kapuczynski, the Emperor, Downfall of an Autocrat. The book was published by Random House in 1984, although it was originally published in 1978 in Poland. His account of what happened to Haile Selassie in Ethiopia is very, very interesting. Haile Selassie had gained the p throne through a conspiracy by the Western powers when he was a young man to place him on the throne rather than the legitimate ruler. So he gained his throne by dishonesty and lost it finally to dishonest men. Haile Selassie, the author, credits with earnest intentions to try to improve the country. And, by the way, the book is almost entirely made up of verbatim transcripts of interviews with a number of people who were in the court. Uh, their names are not given because it would have meant a death for all of them. At any rate, Haile Selassie had a country that had done things the same way for centuries and had no desire to advance. When he introduced an airplane, there was much hostility to the idea. They did not want the people by and large 
Ethiopia to be modernized. But little by little he did, even to creating schools and a university. Uh, the university, in part, was his downfall because of the radical students. However, the major cause was Haile Selassie himself. And this book is a good case study in political science as it is practiced, not as it is taught. Haile Selassie had a preference for bad uh, associates, bad uh, cabinet members, ministers, and other public officials. The reason for this preference for the corrupt men was that the people would look to him as the source of all true justice. And then he could overrule and he would be dear to the heart of the people who had the freedom to present any kind of petition they wanted to their emperor. And he would hear and alleviate their suffering. So he had a preference. In fact, the system required bad ministers bad associates. Moreover, since he desired to be the source of everything good, it meant, in effect, that he had to rule over everything, to be absolutely in charge. And if anything went wrong, it was because bad ministers were not listening to him. He uh, did a great deal to advance the country. The author is aware of that. But what happened was that in his old age, a famine broke out in one area. Nobody paid much attention to it. After all, famines in Ethiopia and other countries in Africa have been a routine fact over the centuries. However, some liberal journalists picked it up and blew it up to make it a Western sensation about the mismanagement of Ethiopia by Haile Selassie's government. He allowed the journalists to come in, leaning over backwards to go to the affected areas because he wanted to be open and above board, but they magnified the issue, which was serious. The fact that when Westerners attempted to alleviate the suffering with relief, what uh, some of his ministers probably did was to slap a tax on everything that came in. And so on and so forth. This was what toppled Haile Selassie, wiped him out as emperor, because the students picked it up and a revolution was soon underway. The ironic fact is that Ethiopia has another famine now. And this time it is created by the Marxist rulers. But we're not told that they created it. Moreover, the West is pouring in aid even though the evidence indicates that the Marxist regime will use the aid. It will not feed it to the hungry because the hungry are people who are against the government and are being deliberately starved 
to death. When the revolution broke out, Haile Selassie worked with the revolutionaries in a desire to control them and keep the revolution in hand. This is, of course, what Louis XVI did in France, and it failed then and it failed again. However, to me, this book is of tremendous importance because it is a case history on a small scale of what the power state always becomes. It sees itself as the only source of good. I know, for example, that uh, in trial after trial, and on Monday the 12th, I shall be in a trial in Texas, but in trial after trial, it has been demonstrated that homeschool and Christian school children are outperforming public school children. State-appointed uh, personnel, psychologists, have tested the students, and they found these children to be more stable and better adjusted, happier than public school children. But such evidence means nothing. In fact, it only seems to aggravate the state. Why? Because we are coming to the same position as all these tyrannies of old, namely that all good must come from the state, and nothing is more intolerable than for some kind of good to come from a non-statist source. Some very grim stories are told of men who tried to be good officials, apart from the emperor, on their own, which meant they would have built up a personal following. Another book now, one that I read about ten years ago, not long after it first came out, closer to eight years ago, I believe, it is Gerhard P. Schroeder, S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R, -E -E Miracles of Grace and Judgment, which the author published himself. He lives down in the valley below us, or did. He died a few years ago in his 90s. But this book is still available in a few copies. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But to give you an idea of the flavor of this book, Schroeder was in Russia, a member of a Mennonite community, a teacher and then a pastor. When he left Russia, he became a Baptist in Canada and then in California. He lived through the Russian Revolution. He gives you a grim picture of what it was like of what hunger and starvation is like, and how, when the state withholds food from you, it does not make you rebellious. You're too weak to rebel. The area in which he was in was under the uh, control of Makhnovets, anarchists. And in a conversation with one of these anarchists, 
when he suggested reading the Bible, the man turned to him and said, Do not try to change me with advice to read the Bible and to believe in God or with anything of that kind of advice. We Maknovtsi, as partisans and anarchists, have only one program, only one desire and aim, to enjoy living off somebody else's property, to rob and kill as we please. We will not change. And we will be a menace to others as long as we live. Nothing will change us, not the Bible, nor God, neither hell or heaven. We will live this way so long as possible. And when that is no longer possible, we will commit suicide. And only when Mother Soft Earth has covered us will we be harmless." Unquote. Very moving book. And uh, it's an account of a Christian and of his experiences during the Russian Revolution in the Ukraine. You can get this book for $10 postpaid by writing to Trudy, T-R-U-D-Y, Mrs. Trudy Lippert, L-I-P-P-E-R-T, 1425 Holly Drive, H-O-L-L-Y Drive, Lodi, L-O-D-I, California, Nine five two four zero. Post paid for ten dollars until the supply is exhausted, because there are not many copies. You might mention my name when you write for the uh, book. Another book now, written by Michael Walzer, professor of social science at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. He has written some uh, interesting historical works. This one is uh, really about the book of Exodus and how the book of Exodus has had an influence towards revolution, social upheaval, and much more. It's not a great book, but there are some interesting things in it. He speaks about the desire of the Jews to return to Egypt and to enjoy their life of slavery in Egypt. And Walzer comments, indeed, there is a kind of freedom and bondage it is one of the oldest themes in political thought. And there is a kind of bondage in freedom, the bondage of law, obligation, and responsibility. A very important point. And nowadays, too many people want the freedom that goes with slavery. Twenty years ago, I cut a record on, uh, let me see, something about slavery, on the return to slavery, that was the name of it, which deals with uh, 
precisely this fact. How people want the freedom of slavery nowadays. And the freedom of slavery is being cared for. Cradle to grave security. Dorothy was mentioning the record and thought maybe Chuck might want one of these times to hear it and possibly put it on tape for use. About that we will see. This is an interesting book and, uh, while not a profound work, well worthwhile. An interesting quote in the course of this book is from Maimonides, which tells us, uh, it's from his Guide to the Perplexed, one of the problems in our Lord's day because while the temple was still maintained and deeply revered, its meaning was gone because the sacrificial system had lost its meaning. Centuries later, Maimonides reflected this also in his thinking. And Walzer says, according to Maimonides, God recognized the sensual appeal of Egyptian idolatry to the Israelites and accommodated himself to it. The practice of ritual sacrifice was a divine concession so that the people should be left with the kind of practices to which they were accustomed and brought only gradually to the pure worship of God. Another work at this time, The Plague of the Spanish Lady by Richard Collier, a book no longer in print, but uh, an interesting study of the flu epidemic in 1918 and 1919. The interesting thing is that in most of the United States and in much of the world, here we had a major epidemic one of the most powerful in history. And the press did not carry much information about it. So that those of us who went through that epidemic, went through it, knew how great it was. It killed, as I recall, 26 million the world over and was not given the attention that logically one would have expected. Now another item. This has been reprinted from a Chinese newspaper, Mandate of People's Government of China. One, no church may be organized outside of government-sponsored church. Three, self-patriotic movement. Two, no baptism may be conducted without a government-approved minister. Three, have no contact with foreign religious organizations and have no religious books uh, which are purchased from abroad. Severe punishment for offenders. Four, no one shall print the Bible or other religious books without permission. Five, no discussion of religion freely anywhere. Six, do not make your faith known to others. Seven, no prayer shall be said except on Sundays. Eight, imparting religious ideas to persons under 18 is forbidden. 
Nine, you may not sing religious songs to persons under 18. Ten, no emphasis is to be placed on religious commitment to increase burdens of believers. Now on to something else from the Daily News Digest for the week ending 7-31-85. The Cola Connection. I think I'll uh, read this in full because it ties in with something I was just talking about. I quote, As with political parties, there are two major players in the cola war. Coca-Cola, the drink of Democrats, and Pepsi-Cola, the Republican refresher. Sure, there are third-party colas, but as in politics, not much is said about them. This soda pop politics is not coincidence. Coca-Cola has been the undisputed majority cola since the New Deal. The Coke connection was formed in 1932 when the Democratic National Chairman, Postmaster General James Farley, left the Roosevelt administration to become chairman of the Coca-Cola Export Corporation. The sugar rationing of World War II could have brought the entire cola industry to its knees. But Farley's political connections helped Coke escape the rationing. Coke was declared a war, war priority item. And at the end of the war, Coke had 64 bottling plants built around the world, all at government expense. Pepsi retaliated by forming a political alliance of its own with a little-known junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy. In a battle that foreshadowed his labor, later anti-communism crusade, this, the Pepsi-Cola kid fought for an end to rationing. His usefulness came to an end, however, when it was revealed that Pepsi's Washington representative had given him $20,000. Pepsi soon forged a more successful political alliance with Richard Nixon, then vice president. Thanks to some pushing by Pepsi chairman Donald Kendall, Pepsi was the only soft drink represented at the American International Exposition, the site of Nixon's famous kitchen debate with Nikita Khrushchev. Nixon even got Khrushchev to drink some Pepsi, and photos of the historic drink were seen around the world. When Nixon's political career faltered in the early 1960s, Kendall hired him as an international ambassador for Pepsi. Then, as Nixon gained momentum in the late 1960s, Pepsi sales went right along with him. In 1968, when the Democrats lost the presidency, Pepsi machines were installed in the White House cafeteria. In 1971, Nixon sent Kendall on a trade mission to Moscow, and Pepsi became the first consumer product sold in the USSR. Meanwhile, Coca-Cola, based in Atlanta, was looking for another Democrat to support. It found a hometown boy. During Jimmy Carter's long march to the White House, he used Coca-Cola money, Coca-Cola jets, and Coca-Cola advertising company. When he was elected, the Pepsi machines in the White House were replaced by Coke machines. Coke also used its Carter connection to take China, just as Pepsi had breezed into the Soviet Union in the Nixon years. 
1979, Pepsi finally overtook Coke in the total corporate sales, and the Republican Party began dreaming of realignment. Not long after, Phil Dusenberry, the man in charge of Pepsi advertising, was recruited by the Tuesday team which devised Ronald Reagan's advertising in the 1984 campaign. Pepsi and the GOP developed a new strategy for the yuppie market, the new generation. Coca-Cola then did what any Democrat in trouble does, hire political advisors. Pat Cadell, Democratic pollster, and Scott Miller, media strategist for John Glenn's presidential campaign, were brought on board to study a new idea, a new Coke. Bob Shrum, who wrote Teddy Kennedy's speech at the 1980 Democratic National Convention, was hired to write speeches about the new Coke formula. New ideas alienated old constituencies, and talk of realignment filled the air. Over at corporate headquarters, Coke has now tried the same schizophrenic approach. It decided to bring back the old Coke in a new container, but still keep the new Coke on the market. Will this two-track approach give the Democrats what it takes to recapture the White House? It's tough to say. The latest figures on cola sales aren't in yet. Is this mind-blowing or what? Uh, this story was originally published in the Orange County Register in Santa Ana, California. When we first read the story, we kept waiting for the punchline, thinking it was all a put-on. But no, it's apparently true. It is interesting to note that most of the Coke and Pepsi big shots are all members of the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Commission, unquote. Well, I was talking about Diocletian and Haile Selassie. Anytime you get a power state, business is going to get on board. To survive, you have to have federal help, state help. And so all your corporations who are thinking about survival are doing their best to play the power game with the officials. Coke proved it works. Sixty-four bottling plants the world over built at government expense. Nice if you can get it. Well, when they provide us with 64 calcedon uh, branches, at uh, taxpayers' expense, we will let you know, and we'll pack up to leave town in a hurry. Now, on to something else. In the uh, magazine Private Practice for July 1985, there are some excellent articles on uh, free enterprise medicine alternatives to Medicare. Uh, this is a medical uh, periodical, and it is well worth borrowing from a doctor friend just for this issue. One of the very fine articles is written by Dr. Frank Rogers, who is on our mailing list. And he calls attention to... Um, what is happening to health care and what can be done 
if the private sector gets into it. Then another periodical which uh, might be worth your attention because uh, <laughs> it is uh, written in a way few are. It's uh, the Southern Partisan. And you'd better believe it's Southern and it is partisan because uh, it <laughs> it is intense and vehement about uh, its position. It does have good articles uh, of general interest, such as Warren Lehman's Who Controls Public, uh, Public Schools and other such articles. So the Southern Partisan is $12 a year from the Southern Partisan Corporation, 1703 uh, Gervais Street, Columbia, South Carolina, 29201. It's usually delightful reading. Now on to something else. California business for July 1985 a large business magazine, has an interesting cover story, a long article, Danger, the KGB is after your employees. It's quite a hair-raising uh, article because what the author Norman Lynn, L-Y-N-N, points out is that uh, in California alone, uh, there are 3,000 defense manufacturers, 14,500 in the country. There are 4 million people with clearances to work in these plants and have access to 19.6 million classified uh, documents. It's much too easy, the author says, to uh, get clearance. It's much too easy to break into the um, security system to get around it because basically Americans are naive and uh, all too trusting. Moreover, he calls attention to the fact that uh, young people Naming, uh, citing one 15-year-old uh, who came within two numbers of cracking the complex security system. And uh, how many others who have, one way or another. For example, this illustration, giving the name of a 20-year-old San Diego high school graduate who penetrated NASA and Department of Defense computers. He was able to get into the mainframe system past the security barriers and create a personal file for himself by hanging up the telephone without logging off the computer. When the next person signed onto the computer, he unwittingly recorded his password in this man's secret file." Unquote. 
So it's an important article because it does tell you how lax our security is, how easily even uh, teenagers can breach it. Then there's an excellent article in this same issue. School dropout rates are an economic time bomb for business. The point is, of course, that uh, business needs skilled labor. And we are turning out more and more unskilled students. We no longer have the unskilled labor that was once a, a considerable part of our labor force. So the result is the uh, welfare load will increase, crime will go up, and future pension programs will lack funding. The situation is uh, one that is primarily California-oriented in this study, but there's no difference in the situation across country. Very interesting issue. Now on to something else. One of the problems that writers have nowadays is that uh, publishers, by and large, are not honest uh, publishers. This goes for Christian and non-Christian. The uh, system of royalties that... Uh, is worked out is such that uh, any kind of expense can be charged to uh, the author against his royalties. So that while the author figures he's going to make uh, so much money out of thousands of copies sold, in actuality he may get nothing or just a few dollars because all kinds of uh, costs are charged to the author, the person who is the source of the book. So the bookseller gets 40 or 50 cents on the price. The publisher, after deducting his expenses, gets something, but not the writer. In defense of the publisher, let me add that publishing is becoming difficult. Uh, the booksellers have the upper hands. They are demanding books on consignment, and they are creating some real headaches. But the publishers are not honest, so who can feel sorry for them? In the California Living uh, Sunday Supplement for the Los Angeles Herald, July 7, 1985, there is a long article on the Christian romances that are being written, how Christian writers are attempting to take on the big boys in the romance market, written by Carol A. Crotta. Well, uh, the interesting thing to me, and this is why I brought up this article, is that these Christian publishers, including some big names, are as dishonest as any other 
For example, one uh, writer who sold a book, which uh, was a paperback, and therefore the uh, money was not great on it, but from the modest sales she should have received in any honest accounting, $1,305. She received a dollar forty-five cents. This is why one man told me that uh, Captain Kidd missed his calling. He should have been a publisher. This is one reason why we have started Ross House Books. Another is that serious books less and less find a market with publishers because with inflation and with inventory taxes, they cannot afford to have a book that's a slow seller. We have a book out now through Ross House Books uh, entitled Alive by Dr. Magnus Verbrugge which in the area of uh, origins of life and creationism and science and so on is a book of major importance. It is interesting that 14 secular publishers expressed interest in it, looked at it, held it for quite a while, and then decided they could not publish it because they felt while it might be the book that redirected a great deal of scientific thinking in the years to come. And while it was very readable, it would be a slow seller. And commercial publishers today cannot hold a book from one year to another. Most of them have to get rid of the book within the year. So, that's the reason why they are in crisis, but of course it does not help that uh, publishers in the process are dishonest. You can't feel sorry for them for the licking they're taking. And another thing from the Stockton record for Monday, July the 15th, 1985, a long, long article, most of the page in fact, on Teacher testing doesn't do what it should. It's half the page. By Thomas Toch, T-O-C-H. It is a criticism of uh, teacher testing. And the subtitle says, Test in Arkansas shows standards are meaningless. Well, if a test shows that uh, teachers cannot read very well, and cannot spell, and cannot frame a sentence, it will at least show that they don't belong in the ranks of teachers. The author is right. Such tests do not show who the good teachers are. But they do at least show who cannot qualify as a teacher. person who is semi-literate. So there's a lot of garbage written on things like that. Then this I've been uh, meaning to call to your attention, and no doubt some of you saw it. On the 29th of June, New York, one of the 
uh, teenagers who was shot by Getz. Remember him, the subway shooting? Is now charged with rape and robbery. So that uh, <laughs> this puts a little different picture on the entire episode and these innocent young uh, men, supposedly, who attacked Getz. Our time is uh, just about over, but uh, one last item very quickly. This also from, uh, well, this is from the Palo Alto Times Tribune for Monday, July 22, 1985, on the comment page, page 10. Column by William Raspberry, entitled, He Thinks the Entertainment Notables Doth Protest Too Much. And he deals with all this uh, education about drugs. And the point he makes, and I quote from the conclusion, just last week, Jesse Jackson asked a crowd of some 500 youngsters how many of them had experimented with illegal drugs. A good number admitted they had. Then he asked those to stand who personally knew people who were either in jail or dead as a result of illegal drug drugs. About half the audience stood. The point, if teenagers scrounging for summer jobs know what the drugs can do to you, surely the stars of entertainment and sports know. It's hard to see how education can be the solution if ignorance is not the problem." Unquote. Now that gets to the heart of a major problem and a great many people, including Mrs. Reagan, need to know that it is not ignorance of drugs that is the problem, so that knowledge of drugs is not the cure. The issue is a moral issue. It is a religious issue. And they're not going to deal with it honestly or with any hope of making a dent on the problem until they get to the heart of it. It is a moral, a religious problem. Well, thank you for listening. Our time is up. As always, I look forward to these sessions and... We'll be with you again in a couple of weeks.